turn with me in God's Word to Mark's Gospel, Mark chapter 11, and is found on page 1167. Mark chapter 11, we're going to read verses 1 to 11. Listen, this is God's Word. Now when they drew near Jerusalem to Bethphage and to Bethany at the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, and he said to them, Go into the village opposite you, and as soon as you have entered it, you will find a colt tied, on which no one has sat. Loose it and bring it. And if anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and immediately he will send it here. And so they went their way and found the colt tied by the door outside on the street, and they loosed it. But some of those who stood there said to them, What are you doing loosing the colt? And they spoke to them just as Jesus had commanded, and so they let them go. Then they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their clothes on it, and he sat on it. Many spread their clothes on the road. Others cut down leafy branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Then those who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of our father David that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And Jesus went into Jerusalem and into the temple. So when he had looked around at all things, as the hour was already late, He went out to Bethany with the twelve. Amen. May God bless to us the reading of his word. Now when a couple are expecting a baby, there is a lot of excitement. But there's always some hesitation about when to announce the news. You want to make sure that those closest to you find out first before you share with everyone else. You often find there are those people who are guessing if there is a pregnancy. Then there are also those telltale signs where the pregnant mother is eating peculiar things or not consuming certain things. And then when the couple is ready to share, there's this big announcement so that everyone knows if they haven't figured it out already. Well, in a sense, that's what's happening here. It's something similar Jesus came on the scene and he announced that the kingdom of God is near. But he does this in Galilee, his home region. And in human terms, Galilee is not that important. Yes, it's got a thriving fishing industry, but it's not the political center of Palestine. It's not Jerusalem, which is the political and religious capital for Palestine. Throughout Jesus' ministry, there was a lot of talk about timing. Because his time had not yet come, there was a hesitancy. We also considered how he chose to share the good news with individual people. And those individuals were often on the periphery of society. And even then, he told them not to share. When he was with the crowds, we often read of him escaping the crowds. He did not want their attention. Well, in our passage today, all of that has now changed. Jesus makes it clear in a definitive way by him entering Jerusalem. And so I want you to notice, 
Jesus is the king who has come to save you. And so are you ready to submit your life to him? Well, firstly, notice Jesus is on the way to Jerusalem to die for you. This is verse 1. Last week, we considered the healing of Bartimaeus on the road from Jericho to Jerusalem. And we noticed how Jesus is focused. He's determined to go to Jerusalem. That's his mission. He would not be distracted. And yet we considered how in his compassion he did stop. He stopped to heal Bartimaeus. And not just from his physical blindness, but also from his spiritual blindness. Jesus came to save. And so we saw this in a micro level, what Jesus was going to do on this macro level. The salvation he brings about would have an effect, not just in Jesus' day, but it would have an effect throughout history and across the world. Well, Jesus is continuing on in this journey, and we read that before he enters Jerusalem, he comes to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives. And I hope you picked up a handout this evening. You'll find a map there, and you'll see this cross-section of Jesus' journey from Jericho up to Jerusalem. It's a steep road. And and we see also in the second diagram how uh, Bethany is at the bottom of the Mount of Olives, which is two miles from Jerusalem. And the village of Bethphage is believed to be at the top of the Mount of Olives. And Bethany is the hometown of Mary and Martha and Lazarus, whom Jesus rose from the dead. John, his account of Jesus going up to Jerusalem, he includes how Jesus and his disciples visit Bethany, and we read of Mary anointing Jesus. Jesus recognizes that this is preparation for his death. Again, another prediction that Jesus was going to die in Jerusalem, and it was the very next day that Jesus would enter Jerusalem. Now, you can see from your map that the Mount of Olives that blocks the view of the city of Jerusalem. So it wouldn't be until you reached the top of the Mount of Olives that then you would have this panoramic view of the city of Jerusalem. And in the center would be the temple, this beautiful and glorious building. And so there would have been a wow factor as you climbed up onto this mountain. I know many of you have traveled to Pittsburgh and one way into the city of Pittsburgh is through a tunnel. And when you come out of the tunnel, The city of Pittsburgh is right in front of you. It's a beautiful view, and that's similar to what we have here. But we read in Luke's account that Jerusalem did not have a wow factor for Jesus. Instead, his reaction was very different. And you have this in your handout in Luke 19. As he drew near, he saw the city, and he wept over it, saying, If you had had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you and close you in on every side and level you and your children within you to the ground. And they will not leave you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. And so Jesus wept over the city of Jerusalem. He knew this city would reject him as it had rejected the prophets before him. And so as a result, Jerusalem was marked for judgment. 
Remember, Jesus arrives in Jerusalem at the time of Passover. Thousands of pilgrims would be with him, traveling along the road. He would be surrounded by his own disciples, not just the twelve, but we read in Luke's account of multitudes of disciples. In John's account, we read of how many people came out of Bethany to see not just Jesus, but also Lazarus, this man who Jesus had raised from the dead. But we also read in John's account of another reaction, John 11, verse 55, And the Passover of the Jews was near. Many went from the country up to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. Then they sought Jesus and spoke among themselves as they stood in the temple. What do you think? that he will not come to the feast. Now, both the chief priests and the Pharisees had given a command that if anyone knew where he was, he should report it, that they might seize him. Not everyone was excited by Jesus' arrival. The religious leaders had decided now is the time to remove Jesus. And so at Passover, Jesus would die in Jerusalem. At Passover, they would remember the sacrifice of the lamb, and how the blood of the lamb was used to protect God's people from judgment in Egypt. Well, behold, Jesus is the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. The Passover, it pointed to him and his sacrificial work that he would complete in Jerusalem. So it's no wonder all four Gospels uh, recognize and mention Jesus' arrival into Jerusalem. It is a significant event. This is Jesus committing himself to his redeeming work. We sometimes use the phrase, the die is cast, meaning there is no going back. Or maybe you've seen the movie Home Alone when the clock strikes nine o'clock, the time that the robbers would come to rob the McAllister home. Kevin says, this is it. Don't get scared now. He could have run away, but instead he's chosen to take these robbers on. Well, this is Jesus, this is it moment. Jesus had committed himself to going to Jerusalem. There was no turning back. He came to Jerusalem to die for you and me. Well, secondly, notice Jesus is your promised Messiah in verses 2 to 6. So how would an important person make themselves known in a new location? For the president of the USA, he arrives on Air Force One. And when he descends those steps, he's greeted by the leader of the country that he is visiting. Or when a sports team wins a major title, they return to their home city. And they often are on an open-top bus. And they parade through the city with their trophy. And they show it off to all the fans that have come to, to see them. Well, how does someone like Jesus come to a city? How does he enter Jerusalem? Well, he gets on a donkey, of course. And this seems a surprising way to enter Jerusalem. Remember, everyone else was coming by foot, but Jesus knows perfectly well what he is doing. By coming in, riding on a donkey, he was making this huge statement. Everyone would know who Jesus believed himself to be. There'd be no confusion Riding on a donkey, Jesus is declaring himself to be the Messiah. And that's because the prophecy of Zechariah had prophesied 
of the coming king arriving on a donkey. And we read this in the call to worship. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. And so we get uh, these very specific details of Jesus giving instructions to his disciples while at Bethage to go and get a donkey, a colt. Some say this was prearranged by Jesus. Others say that this is Jesus' divine sovereignty making it happen. Either way, it's not that important. What is important is that Jesus is fulfilling prophecy and that everyone understood the statement that Jesus was making. He is saying, I am that coming king that was prophesied in Zechariah. Now, identity is an important theme in Mark's gospel. Uh, we notice how many people question Jesus' identity. Was he simply a teacher, a prophet? Was he a, a miracle worker? Was he John the Baptist, raised from the dead? No, Jesus is saying that he is the king by riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. And in these detailed instructions, we read of Jesus directing the disciples to a colt that is tied up and that they were to loose it. Then we read of them finding this tied up colt and them loosing it. Then they're asked, why are you loosing it? And it's repetitive in nature because Jesus is alluding to another prophecy. And that prophecy is in Genesis 49, where Jacob is blessing his sons. And we read of a particular prophecy for Judah. In Genesis 49, Judah, as a lion, who shall rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the people, binding his donkey to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He washed his garments in wine and his clothes in the blood of grapes. So these verses speak of a coming king, the coming Messiah from the tribe of Judah and describing him like a lion. And so that speaks of him being the conquering, victorious king. He is to have the obedience of the people. Everyone is to submit to him. And then we have these peculiar verses of binding his donkey to the vine, his donkey's colt to the choice vine. Well, the vine is often a symbol for Jesus Christ, and that speaks of how we have joy and peace in Christ. And so strong is this vine that donkeys and colts can be tied to it, pointing forward to this very event where this colt, which had never been ridden before, would calmly bring Jesus into Jerusalem before these crowds of people. And if you know anything about animals, animals are not normally that calm, especially if they haven't been ridden on before. We read also of this uh, wine from this vine, which would cover the clothes, and that speaks of his upcoming atoning sacrifice. And we'll talk about that a little later. So Jesus is carefully fulfilling prophecies here so that you know that he is the promised Messiah. Well, thirdly, notice that Jesus is your humble king who shows compassion in verse 7. Jesus' entry into Jerusalem speaks of his humility. Now remember, Jesus is all-powerful. He is glorious. He is the son of man from Daniel's prophecy who has dominion over all nations. At his command, he has a legion of angels. And yet he comes into Jerusalem, 
on the donkey. One commentator says this is like the president arriving on a trike. The people are wanting a Messiah. They're wanting a powerful Messiah to defeat the Romans. This humble king is not what they expected. In Northern Ireland, there are parades every year on the 12th of July to celebrate Protestant King William of Orange uh, defeating Catholic King James II. And this battle happened at the River Boyne in Ireland. And there are lots of pictures of King William or King Billy. And he's on his white horse, looking strong, looking invincible after winning the battle by crossing the river and defeating the enemy. However, the historical record describes King William not on a white horse, but on a brown horse, which got stuck in the mud off the river. And this commotion caused King Billy to have an asthma attack, and so he had to be carried over the river. Now, that does not fit the narrative of a powerful king, and so that's completely ignored from history. Well, Jesus is the powerful king who comes humbly, not with horses, war horses, not with weapons or armies, but it would be in his humiliation that he would rescue his people from tyranny that they are under. And how would he do this? Well, we read that this colt was never sat on before. And that's important because it points to something being set apart, as to something that is sanctified, has been given a special task. And the special task would be to carry the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this is sacrificial language, pointing to the fact that Jesus would be perfect sacrifice. Verse 11, we read that the first place that Jesus goes to in Jerusalem was the temple. Surely as a king, he would go to Herod's palace, or he would go to Pilate's fortress. No, Jesus would defeat his enemy through the means of a sacrifice. And so he goes to the temple, which is ultimately a shadow of Christ. And so all the years, the sacrifices that happened in the temple And yet it was pointing to the very sacrifice that Jesus is about to make himself. That's how Jesus would be the rescuer of his people. It would be through his humility he would lay down his life. Uh, This is not, this is his, his meekness. But remember, his meekness is not weakness. It is his compassion. I heard it recently described like a crocodile. These crocodiles have huge powerful jaws that can grab a kicking and running wildebeest and bring it down and kill it. But these same jaws can carry and tenderly pick up its eggs and carry those eggs to a safe place. Well, Jesus is humble and gentle. That does not mean he is weak. Instead, it points to his strength and that he can demonstrate his compassion to his people. So we don't want a king on a white horse, a lofty king who is not able to relate to you and me. Instead, we want a king who can reach low to where we are and to save us. As you know, in the UK, there is the royal family. And uh, one of the issues with the British royal family is that the people want them to be regal, to live in palaces to be strong, to be influential, to bring pride to the British nation. 
And at the same time, we want the royal family to be relatable. We want them to roll up their sleeves and get their hands dirty. We want them to be just like one of us. Well, that's an impossible position for them to be in. But Jesus, he did humble himself by coming into this world to serve and show compassion. And yet he is also powerful, for in doing so, he is the victorious king who has come to save us. Well, fourthly, notice Jesus is the king who brings peace, and you are to worship him, verses 8 to 10. What Jesus was doing was not lost on the people. Hughes writes, a growing throng was caught in something of a mass prophetic ecstasy as the long procession moved along the slopes of the Mount of Olives. The people, they know these prophecies, and they are excited. In the Chronicles of Narnia, you will remember how the inhabitants of Narnia, especially Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, were excited by the arrival of the Pevens' children. There were no humans in Narnia, but there was this prophecy that when Adam's flesh and Adam's bone sits at Ker Paravel and throne, the evil time will be over and done. And so they saw in these children that they were the fulfillment of the prophecy and that the evil reign of the white witch would soon be over. And so likewise, you are to imagine the excitement of the people. Notice the respect, the adoration that they show Jesus. They take off their cloaks and they put their cloaks on the colt, or they put their cloaks on the ground so the colt would walk on them. They tore down palm branches and laid them on the ground. This is the equivalent of laying out the red carpet before Jesus Christ. They believed Jesus was their Messiah. The palm branches, it points back to an episode in Israel's past, that of the Maccabean Revolt. 150 years earlier, Judas Maccabeus had led Israel's victory over the Syrian occupation. The Syrian ruler Antiochus had killed thousands of Jews. He had desecrated the temple by sacrificing a pig on the altar, forced the priest to eat its flesh, and this successful revolt against Antiochus made Maccabeus, Judas Maccabeus a hero. And the crowd celebrated his victory by waving palm branches. And so the crowds of people are thinking in a similar way. And they're thinking that Jesus is going to be a political messiah. Not realizing that the Romans were not their greatest problem. Jesus came to defeat a greater enemy. And so while they cry out Hosanna, which literally means save us, they were looking to Christ to save them from the Roman oppression. But Jesus was, would save them from a greater enemy, that of sin and death. And they quote from Psalm 118, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Psalm 118 is part of the Hallel, a group of Psalms, Psalm 113 to 118, that the Jews would sing on their way to Jerusalem for the Passover. And so they saw Jesus as the fulfillment of the psalm, that he was coming in the name of the Lord. They also said, blessed is the kingdom of our father David that comes in the name of the Lord. And so they saw that Jesus would bring a kingdom, that he was the true son of David who would come and save them. But again, the kingdom they wanted was something that would have rivaled that of David and Solomon's political kingdom. Jesus' kingdom would not be like that. Jesus was not coming to bring war. 
they were ready for a war with the Romans. But Jesus came and promised peace. He is the Prince of Peace. Him riding on a donkey pointed to that fact. Solomon, too, rode a donkey before he was anointed king over Israel and Judah. He, too, was a son of David, and his kingdom was known for its peace and its prosperity. But it was not lasting. And so it would be another son of David. It would be Jesus Christ who would bring a kingdom known for its lasting peace and prosperity. And so it is right for Jesus to be worshipped in this way. Although the people misunderstood it, it was right that they brought adoration. In Luke's account, we hear of the Pharisees calling to Jesus from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. And so Jesus is saying, it is right for these people to bring their praise to me. He realized he is deserving of praise. He is the king who brings peace. He is worthy of worship. And so therefore he is worthy of your worship. For it is in Christ that you have peace. Well, finally notice Jesus is your Lord. Submit your life to him. So in the passage we see Jesus describe himself in verse 2 as the Lord. That is what the disciples are to say uh, to any who ask why they are taking this cult. That would be sufficient. The term Lord here refers to him being the master. He is in charge. He is in control. And as a result, he is to be obeyed. And we see his disciples doing just that. Even though this is a strange request, we read that they obeyed just as they were commanded. Well, who is Lord of your life? Who is Lord of this world? Today we see how the woke agenda has taken over, how it is in charge. It controls the media. It controls politics and schools, even science and medicine. You're not allowed to speak against it or you will be cancelled. Back home in Northern Ireland, the largest Protestant denomination is that of the Presbyterian Church in Ireland, And their current moderator is in the news at the moment. He's in trouble because he says that he does not believe in women elders. And the media, in response, are having a field day. How can you believe in something like that in today's world? But this moderator believes that Jesus is Lord and so is seeking to submit to him. I've quoted this before, how Rico Tice puts this very simply. I am for what Jesus is for and I am against what Jesus is against. That's what it means for Jesus to be Lord of your life. And so you are called to obey, even when it's hard. You're called to obey, even when it doesn't make sense. The request of Jesus to these two disciples does not make much sense to them. I doubt they fully understood what Jesus was about to do, and yet they obeyed. They saw Jesus not as their friend, but as their master, their Lord. And we see his lordship again in verse 11. Now, verse 11 seems like an anticlimax to this whole event. After the triumphant entry into Jerusalem, Jesus enters the temple. He takes a quick look around, but it's late, and so he thought, I better get back to Bethany, back to Mary and Martha. He doesn't want to be late, for Mary will be providing this huge supper for him. 
Well, is that how you read it? That's often what I thought was going on, that the triumphant entry, this procession, it simply took up too much time, so Jesus had no time to look around at the temple. But Jesus is not a tourist here taking in the sights. Now, when Mark writes that he looked around, it means something very different. We read of this phrase back in Mark chapter 3 when he said, when it writes, Then he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or do evil, to save life or to kill? But they kept silent. And when he had looked around at them with anger, being grieved by the hardness of their hearts, he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored as whole as the other. Then the Pharisees went out and immediately plotted with the Rodians against him how they might destroy him. To look around means to judge. So Jesus, as he condemned them, uh, the the Pharisees and um, the Herodians, and notice their response. They did not want to be judged, and so they sought to destroy him. Well, Jesus is judging here in verse 11. He is condemning what is happening in the temple. But this is the calm before the storm. Jesus shows patience on this occasion. But the next day, he would come. And he would cleanse the temple, and we'll look more at that next week. And the result of all of this is that Jerusalem will never be the same again. This glorious temple will soon be destroyed. Jesus is Lord, and so it's wrong for these religious leaders not to submit to him, and they would be judged for this. And this is a warning to you. If you have not submitted yourself to Christ, who is your king, who is your Lord, well, then you too are ripe for judgment. Christ is looking around at you. He is demanding your obedience. But before the judgment of Jerusalem, Jesus faced another judgment, his own judgment on the cross. He took the judgment on himself that we deserved. And so while Jerusalem would face judgment in the years to come, They could cry out to Jesus, Hosanna, save us. And because of Jesus' sacrifice, they would be saved. And that is the position that you and I enjoy. We have cried out, Hosanna, to Jesus. He has indeed saved you. Because of his compassion, you know his peace. That is the salvation you are to contemplate, especially as we come and sit around the table. But if you have not acknowledged it, you must now submit to Christ. He is the king. He is the king who came to save you. And so you are to respond by submitting your life to him. Amen. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. And we thank you for helping us understand who Jesus is. That Jesus is the king whom you have promised that Jesus, in his compassion, went to Jerusalem to die on the cross to save us so we can know peace. And so, Lord, help us to respond in worship and in submitting our lives to him. We ask this in his name. Amen. Well, please turn to Psalm 118e. Psalm 118e, these are the words that um, the crowd shouted at Christ. And so as you sing the psalm, remember Christ's triumphant entry into Jerusalem.
and so respond with thanksgiving. Just stand and sing Psalm 118E.